Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Diving Board Podcast. I am your host, Jill, and thank you so much for joining me. Surprise, I am alive. I'm back uh, like a phoenix just rising from the ashes. I have resurrected. I am so excited to be back. I miss you all so much. So I'm just happy to be in front of this microphone, just ready to reunite with you all. Like I said, I miss you all just a lot. And I hope you guys are all doing amazing. I hope you had an amazing summer. I kept really, really busy over the last two months. I finished my capstone for my MBA and that was very, very time consuming. So I'm really happy to have had that done. And the great thing about capstones is that that kind of means you're you're at the end, which I am. I actually started the last class of business school last week, which is absolutely mind-blowing. I started business school kind of to keep busy during quarantine, and I started in May of 2020. So it was a much different time, a very, very uncertain time and high anxiety. So I'm kind of happy and grateful, very, very grateful to kind of come out on the other side of this. And I can't believe two and a half years has already passed. I remember when I first started, that just seemed so far away. So it just, it's surreal that it's almost done. And I'm really, really grateful because I'm a little bit checked out. So (laughs) I'm happy to be done with it, but very, very happy to be back on the Diving Board podcast. I've really, like I said, just missed you all and just really excited to be back. Take a drink every time I say I'm excited, but trust me, I am. So when I was thinking of what we should get back into it, I'm like, okay, I have to do something in honor of starting the last class of business school. It's a really exciting time, a time, like I said, I didn't think would ever come. So I just want to commemorate it. So this particular person I wanted to talk about for a while now, Um, actually thought about it in the spring. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to cover that story because in terms of business and just in terms of life, it is really, really just such an inspirational story. This person has an amazing journey and it's also very scandalous, which we love that here on the Diving Board Podcast. That's what keeps things interesting, right? So I thought this would be a really perfect story. And of course, we're talking about an amazing, amazing businesswoman. So I think it was very apropos to tell this story to commemorate the end of business school. So on that note, without further ado, let's get into our very important business woman special by telling the deep dive of Martha Stewart. So in case you may have forgotten, this is the Diving Board Podcast, and we always take it from the top. Who is Martha Stewart? Well, Martha Helen Kostyra was born on August 3rd, 1941. My fellow Polish Leo, I always feel such a connection to Martha. Uh, She was born in New Jersey and was one of six children. She was actually the second of six children, and I'm the second of four children. So another kind of kindred spirit here. Uh, Martha's father, Edward, he was a pharmaceutical salesperson, and he ran a really, really tight ship with all of the kids growing up. Um, From what I've read about Martha's upbringing with her siblings, it honestly reminded me very much of the Von Trapp children, but instead of, you know, singing songs through the Austrian countryside, Martha and her siblings were really working together with her mother to keep a perfect home for when her father got home from work. Uh, They would kind of work together on a weekly or monthly basis of washing his car in the driveway. And it was just a whole team event, making that car look perfect, washing it, waxing it. He had really, really high standards. And when they would finish walking the car, he or washing the car, he would kind of walk around and inspect it and say, well, you missed a spot here or this doesn't shine properly. So he was definitely a perfectionist. And that kind of trickled down to Martha because Martha is such a perfectionist. Everything is just done to the nines and done in such an extremely perfect way. So that's kind of what she built her aspirational brand on. And that's kind of where it originated. 
And during her teen years, Martha was involved in everything. Martha actually said that the great thing about her parents is that they really fostered her curiosity and always encouraged her to get involved in so many different things. And that's what I love about Martha because my favorite types of people are really curious people. I love people who just want to know about everything. That's kind of how I am, in case you haven't noticed. So I just really, really admire that about her because she was very productive with her curiosity. My curiosity is just going on Wikipedia rabbit holes and learning about the most mundane topics. But Martha just wanted to get her hands on everything. And she was super involved in high school. She was in a ton of extracurricular activities. She was in art club. She was in yearbook club, which I too was involved with. So let's just add that to the list. And Martha also was really involved in kind of homemaking. Her mother taught her how to sew, how to cook. She spent a lot of time gardening with her father, and she also spent a lot of time with her grandmother in upstate New York canning preserves. So Martha just loved to do it all. And this is kind of the makings of Martha Stewart. When she was a child, she just was always really, really skillful. But Martha was very, very productive as a teenager. I wish I was that productive as a teenager. I spent a lot of time in high school simply playing The Sims 2, but uh, rest assured, all of my Sims had maxed out skill levels. So I too ran a tight ship in the simulated universe, don't you worry. But <laughs> I do wish I was a little more productive at such a young age like Martha was, but I think Martha was uh, a rare breed. And Martha says about growing up that her family wasn't poor, but they didn't have a lot of money. I mean, there was six children. It's a lot to kind of make that income stretch. And Martha was really just on her grind. She was always hustling. And by 15, she was babysitting for Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra's kids. And she was also helping plan the birthday parties of Mickey Mantle's sons. And if you're a baseball person, you understand the magnitude of those names. Those are two of the greatest baseball players ever. And the fact that she was planning the birthday parties for Mickey Mantle's sons when she was a teenager, I mean, of course, Martha Stewart was. That's like the most Martha Stewart thing. So, so amazing. And uh, Martha was also exceptionally beautiful. I mean, you've seen what she looks like. She's a really, really beautiful woman. And in her teen years, she started a very lucrative career as a model. She signed with Ford Models and she was in commercials for Unilever. She was in a Clairol commercial. She was in several cigarette commercials, which anyone who knows about the history of advertising it was a really, really flattering achievement to be a woman in a cigarette commercial in the 50s, 60s, and 70s because it was different how it was today. I mean, cigarettes were kind of glorified. They always showed extremely beautiful women. Look at the Virginia Slim models. So it was a big accomplishment to be in a bunch of cigarette commercials. It kind of was that stamp of approval that you're a really beautiful woman. And Martha also got modeling jobs for Chanel and said that she had helped pay for college with her modeling career. She would take modeling jobs that paid around $50 an hour, which is a lot of money. I mean, even today, $50 an hour is good money, but you know, we love our inflation calculators here on the Diving Board Podcast. That's adjusted for inflation is about $500 an hour today. So she was making really, really good money. She had a very lucrative career as a model. And like I said, Martha used that money to pay for her education at Barnard College, where she double majored in architectural history and history. And it was there that she actually met Andrew Stewart, who had just graduated from Yale Law, and they wound up getting married in 1961. Martha was only 20 years old when they got married. So the following year, she went back and she finished her degree. And for several years, Martha actually worked as a stockbroker on the New York Stock Exchange which being a stockbroker is still a heavily male-dominated field, even in 2022. So this is 
Martha Stewart in the 1960s. I mean, think of the New York Stock Exchange. When you think of the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, it's just men in suits screaming at stocks with tickets in their hands, and you don't really picture a woman there. And even today, you don't picture a woman when you first think about it. So the fact that Martha was doing that in the 60s was absolutely incredible. I mean, she's really, really just such a trailblazer. And in perfect Martha Stewart fashion, Martha said when she would go to work at the Stock Exchange, she would go in velvet hot pants with a sweater tucked in with a belt and heeled boots, which is absolutely iconic. I live, I would love to just time travel to see Martha Stewart walking in Manhattan to the New York Stock Exchange in that outfit serving. What an icon. I'm obsessed. So Martha did this for several years and she was very, very successful at it. She's a very intelligent woman and she was really succeeding at her job. But by 1965, Martha gave birth to her only child, which is her daughter, Alexis. And by 1971, the Stewart family packed up from the city and moved to Westport, Connecticut. And Westport is a really beautiful area, and it was there that Martha's true skill for homemaking just absolutely took off. Andrew and Martha, they had actually purchased their home on Turkey Hill. And if you are familiar with Martha Stewart shows, their home on Turkey Hill is a farmhouse that was actually built in 1805. And when they built it, they just completely renovated it from head to toe. They just made it their own. And that really was the backdrop of all of Martha Stewart's shows and specials was their beautiful home in Connecticut. And it's just incredible. It looks like a utopia, just the what they've done to it. Martha said that her and Andrew, they really taught themselves how to renovate it because they were so hands-on with transforming this home. And if you've seen pictures of Turkey Hill, uh, you can tell it's just magnificent and the amount of work they put into it is astronomical. It was beyond a full-time job. When they owned it, it had a full fruit tree orchard. It had perennial gardens, a greenhouse, a chicken coop. It had an in-ground pool that they had built themselves. Martha said when she wanted a brick patio, she learned how to lay the brick herself. I admire that so much as I am just very much a throw money at the problem person. So the fact that Martha learned how to do this all on her own is absolutely amazing to me. And through making this home is where Martha shined as an exceptionally talented homemaker. She had an incredible eye for decorating and she just made the home look perfect. She really created an idyllic universe from scratch. And she was also a great cook. And in 1976, she founded her own catering business. Martha really took pride in her food. She made everything from scratch. They were all her recipes. She made sure the presentation was beautiful. She just really took a lot of pride in what she was offering through her catering business. And she got her first real big break in 1977, Andrew Stewart, he had actually become the president of a major book publisher that was publishing the English edition of The Secret Book of Gnomes. And that became a huge commercial success in the United States. And he asked Martha to cater the book release party. He was like, hey, can you come and host this party and also cater it? And at the party, Martha had, of course, impressed everyone with her food and, of course, her hosting abilities. She had impressed them so much that Ellen Merkin, the head of Crown Publishing, had actually reached out to her after the party to discuss developing a cookbook. He was like, hey, your food is amazing. The way you hosted the party is amazing. I want to put this into print so that other people can learn how to host a party as well as you do. And for the next few years, Martha got to work. She got to work developing recipes. She was taking pictures of the party she was hosting. And as a result, Martha's first book, aptly called Entertaining, was published in 1982. And I admire Martha so much for this book because I really think hosting is a lost art. I always say that I was put on this earth to host a party. I just love creating an experience for people and I love 
kind of catering to people and having them come over and just having them have a great time when I am at the helm. So I really admire Martha for putting pen to paper for one and also just kind of showing the art of hosting individuals and taking care of them. And this book is when Martha's career absolutely skyrocketed. In the 80s, with each new year, came a new book from Martha. There was Martha Stewart's Quick Cook, Martha Stewart's Hors d'oeuvres, Martha Stewart's Pies and Tarts, The Wedding Planner, Secrets for Entertaining, Martha Stewart's Christmas. Martha has actually gone on to write a total of 59 books in her career. I mean, it's this woman is a machine. She never stops. So it's incredible just what she's done. I, I know I keep reiterating that, but it boggles my mind. And Martha was becoming wildly successful. She was on Oprah. She was on Larry King. But while her career was thriving, her home life really was suffering. And by 1987, her and Andrew had separated and they had officially divorced in 1990 after 29 years of marriage. And Martha said that the divorce absolutely devastated her. But those close to the Stewart family, I mean, they really did see it coming. And Martha, in her own words, has described herself as a maniacal perfectionist. And in this world, nobody is perfect. So it would be very difficult to be married to somebody who expects you to be perfect. And I would imagine it would be extremely hard to live up to the standards of Martha Stewart. And Insider said that Martha kind of put Andrew down and was really focused on her career and her career only. So that would be that would be difficult to continue to foster a marriage. And I think Martha is just fiercely independent. And that's, like I said, difficult to kind of foster relationships that way. And Martha's daughter, Alexis, has said that Martha and Andrew were very removed parents and that she essentially raised herself. And Andrew will say the same thing. He said that they were really focused on renovating the house and they didn't spend enough time with Alexis. So like I said, she really feels like she kind of raised herself. And I think Martha is really just in her own world. And sometimes to be such a mega mogul like that, it's you can't have it all. It's hard. There are some some really big sacrifices. So ironically, with her home life kind of hanging by a thread, Martha was still the pillar of the ultimate homemaker. I mean, though her life was hanging by a thread, she could thread that needle and make a beautiful needlepoint of a Connecticut landscape or whatever. I mean, she... It's interesting kind of the juxtaposition of perception and reality because Martha was continuing to take off for being the ultimate image of a perfect home. And the same year her divorce was finalized, Martha actually signed with Time Publishing Ventures to launch her magazine, Martha Stewart Living. And this was a very, very successful magazine, which she actually served as editor-in-chief. The magazine peaked in 2002, selling more than 2 million copies per issue, which is absolutely amazing. And it makes me nostalgic. I miss magazines so much. I used to have so many subscriptions, and that was just my favorite day of the month. It was always the first week of the month when all the magazines would come in. I miss it. Oh, it was such an experience, but gone but not forgotten. Uh, in 1993, Martha, she had actually began a weekly half-hour television program called Martha Stewart Living, and this is where you can see Turkey Hill in the background, and it was based on her magazine. Uh, the show expanded to weekdays in 1997 and later to full-hour shows in 1999 with half-hour episodes running on the weekends. So we were getting a daily dose of Martha on our television screens, and this ran until 2004. Just looking at all this, like I thought I juggled a lot working two jobs and getting an MBA, but for Martha, that's just like a regular Thursday. This woman is next level. Martha said that she wakes up early and goes to bed late because her existence was too exciting to get tired. I mean, that woman is a superhero, kind of psychotic, but a superhero. 
1995, New York Magazine summed Martha up by describing her as the definitive American woman of our time. And it really was true. I mean, Martha represented and still represents to this day a very aspirational and you know, honestly quite unattainable lifestyle. But people still tried every single day to emulate even a shred of an iota of Martha Stewart. I mean, think about even maybe it's just my generation, I don't know if Gen Z is like this, but if you do something really domesticated, say you make an amazing meal or you make a fantastic cake, the first thing out of someone's mouth is, well, aren't you Martha Stewart? Or, you know, something funny like that. But she really is synonymous with being domesticated and excelling at homemaking and that really is her image, and that's the first person we think of. So that's really just the brand that she has built. And by 1997, Martha had actually raised enough funds, which this was hundreds of millions of dollars, to purchase the rights to her various television, print, and merchandising endeavors. And she actually went and consolidated all of those endeavors under the same umbrella, which she called Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. And I just want to take a minute and reiterate that this woman built an entire empire from scratch. I mean, it's incredible what she did. Of course, she had some great opportunities along the way, but this woman really just excelled and put all of her talents to creating this incredible brand. And like I said, empire at this point, it really is. It boggles my mind, just the work that went into this. And also in 1997, Martha Stewart launched the Martha Stewart Everyday line in Kmart stores. And her line, I distinctly remember it as a kid. Uh, it consisted of affordable homewares, including towels, sheets, soap dishes. Um, it's funny because Martha actually says that she was kicked out of her country club in Connecticut for launching a line in Kmart because it was, quote, too low rent for them, which is obviously beyond elitist and hoity people that, quite frankly, don't understand business because, yes, Kmart is a discount store, but in the 90s, it was a massive, massive retailer. It doesn't it just to shun somebody because of that image when Kmart is an incredible store to get a brand in. It just shows you don't know anything. I actually looked up some statistics and in 1998, Kmart was doing nearly $16 billion in sales. So yeah, I'd wanna sell my products there as well. And Martha did not care that people had turned up her nose at her selling at Kmart. I mean, she opened up her products to the average everyday consumer who wanted an affordable luxury in their life. And that is an absolutely brilliant business practice. I mean, I mean, this was the average person who wanted to feel like Martha Stewart in their home, but didn't want to shell out a ton of money to do so. And Martha just stayed true to her business acumen. And that really paid off because in 1999, the Martha Stewart Everyday brand had done over $1 billion in sales. So at this point, Martha could open up her checkbook because this was 1999. We were still writing checks, but she could open up her checkbook and buy the country club. So this just shows she stayed true to herself and she's a absolutely brilliant woman, no matter what anybody was saying. And I just, the Martha Stewart living line at Kmart just holds such a special place in my heart. I remember my mom had this friend, my mom's a nurse, and she had this nurse friend who lived near us and she didn't have any kids. So she would kind of come and pick me up sometimes and pick my siblings up. But her and I would kind of have special time at Kmart because she loved to take me to look at the Martha Stewart living line. And I just remember thinking it was like the most luxurious thing ever. And that kind of ignited a spark in me of just wanting to make a beautiful home. And I live in the city. So my idea of a beautiful home is a 600 square foot apartment but in my mind you know it's a 
sprawling estate in the Hamptons. And I just remember thinking it was the most amazing thing to see these like pretty pastel towels and the soaps. And I just, I was so excited by it. And I was like 10 years old. So, so shout out to Marge. It just holds such a special place in my heart. And I still get as excited as I did back then thinking about it. And that was 20 years ago. So yes, I am, uh, a little long in the tooth, as they say. But um, <laughs> uh, 1999 was a huge year for Martha, as it was also the year that Martha went public with her company, Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, on the New York Stock Exchange. And going public, for those who may not know, that means you've opened your company for people to be able to buy shares of stock in it. So this is a really, really incredible accomplishment. And the day that Martha went public with MSO, she rang the bell on the New York Stock Exchange, and she also served muffins, cookies, and croissants to the traders on the floor. I am obsessed. Like, I love it so much. And her company actually opened at $18 a share, and by market close that same day, it had nearly doubled in price, showing a 97% increase. That day, Martha left the New York Stock Exchange being worth $1.6 billion, rendering her America's first self-made female billionaire. She said that when she went home that night, she was sitting in the back of her town car and they were driving down Madison Avenue and she just looked out the window and she thought, I could buy anything I want on this street. And could you imagine? I just an icon. And and I want to take a moment to really sit and talk about that because if I had asked you five minutes ago, hey, who was the first female self-made billionaire in America? Would you have known that it was Martha Stewart? I feel like if I asked a lot of people, if I took a poll, people would be like, uh, I don't know, Kylie Jenner? It's like, I just don't think it's talked about very much. And it's such an amazing, massive accomplishment. I feel like everyone knows that John D. Rockefeller was the first billionaire in America. And his name, the Rockefeller name, is just synonymous with money. And the guy's been dead 85 years. I mean, Martha's still here. And I feel like that is just not a statistic that people know and that it should be recognized because and now I get it. Kim Kardashian's a billionaire. Kylie Jenner's a billionaire. But it was so much different back then where Martha really, really started from the ground up. I mean, she didn't have a famous family. She didn't have a reality TV show. She created all of these opportunities for herself. And I just feel like it's not discussed. And I really, really think it's important to recognize. So sorry, just indulge me. I, I think it's an amazing accomplishment. So anyway, uh, going into the millennium, it seemed like nothing would slow Martha down. Martha was a mogul and really anything her well manicured hands touched turned to gold. That was, of course, until December 27th, 2001 rolled around and Martha's life would change forever. And of course, you know, I'm referring to the insider trading scandal. And before I get going on that, I want to kind of be bare bones on this. Um, first, I want to talk about what is insider trading? Well, insider trading is when you have some kind of insider knowledge or access to information that the general public isn't privy to that could change the performance of a company's stock, whether it being really good or really bad. Um, for example, I mean, I work for a publicly traded company and an example of insider trading, don't get excited. This was absolutely never happened. But an example of insider trading would be me sitting at my desk and the CEO comes up and says, hey, Jill, to, in a couple of days, we're going to announce to the public our earnings for the first half of the year. And they're really, really bad. We're way below goal. Our profits are you know, really, really low. We didn't hit any milestone. And when we announce this information, the stock is going to absolutely tank. 
So before the market closes today, make sure you sell off any stock you have in the company so that you don't lose money. It could also work conversely. He could come up to my desk and say, hey, we have a patent that just got approved of this incredible technology that no company has. And when we announce it to the public in a couple days, the stock is going to absolutely skyrocket. So make sure you invest any money that you have into the stock so that you could quadruple your money by the end of the week. That's an example of insider trading. Again, that would never happen at my company, but that is what happens. And it is very, very illegal. And that is also the point I want to make because when I've listened to a couple of podcasts on the Martha Stewart insider trading scandal, there's been a couple of people and a couple hosts that say, well, is insider trading even illegal? Uh, you know, it's a victim crime. It's I don't understand what's wrong with it. It's just making money. I, I don't understand. And the people who think that I just have to guess and draw the conclusion that they don't invest in the stock market, because if you invest in the stock market, you understand that insider trading, for lack of a better term, it just sucks. I mean, it's awful because in this country, and I'm sure other countries too, but I can only speak firsthand for America because, well, I'm American, but in this country, the stock market is really one of the only opportunities for the average person to gain a substantial amount of wealth. I mean, people make millions of dollars in the stock market, and I'm not saying that that's commonplace or that that's easy to do or that the stock market is a get-rich-quick scheme, but it is one of the only opportunities in this country for the average person to gain a substantial amount of wealth, whether that be saving up for a retirement fund where if you save up little by little and it compounds over several decades, it can turn into a million dollars or two million dollars. It's a great way to grow your wealth or say you hit a really, really great investment and you buy really low and you sell really high. Those are great opportunities that the stock market offers to average people. And it's one of the only opportunities in this country for the average person to really, really build their wealth in a substantial way because it's uncommon for people to become really, really wealthy from their salaries because, well, let's face it, companies just aren't paying that much. So that is one of the only opportunities for the average person to really, really get ahead. And like I said, I'm not saying that that's an easy thing to do, but the opportunity is there. So when insiders and people that are really high up at stock brokerages or really high up execs are manipulating the market, it just becomes not an even playing field because I'm sure the average person who has $3,000 invested in the market, $3,000 of their hard-earned money invested, would love to know the performance of a stock before it happens, but the average person just isn't privy to that information. And at the end of the day, insider trading just isn't fair. And I know life's not fair and blah, 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 but there are laws in place to make life a little more fair. And I understand that insider trading isn't a violent crime, but white collar crimes are still crimes. It's still illegal to do that. So I just wanted to get that established because my mind was a little boggled listen, listening to a few people talk about this topic. And this is my platform to respond. So thank you for indulging me on that. I just wanted to get that out there for everyone. I mean, you're kind of getting business school Jill here, and I'm kind of living for this different perspective. But back to our regular scheduled programming, back to Martha. So in late 2001, Martha Stewart had owned just about 4,000 shares of the company Imclone. And Imclone was a biopharmaceutical company that manufactured cancer drugs. Imclone was really trying to get into manufacturing a cancer drug called Herbitux. And they were really, really banking on FDA approval so that they could start manufacturing this drug. But that was soon foiled because the FDA 
I don't know what was wrong with the drug, but the FDA took one look at it and said, we're not even going to review this drug because it would be a waste of time because we would reject it anyway. So that was a really, really big blow to the company because they were kind of banking on this drug being big once it gets into manufacturing and making the company a lot of money. And the stockholders were also banking on that. So I'm clone knew that once they released to the public that the drug was rejected by the FDA, they knew that everyone would sell off their stock and the price of the stock would absolutely tank. So I just want to first say that everything that I'm going to talk about in this next story is, quote, alleged. Um, <laughs> I just want to say that because I don't want anyone from the Martha Stewart camp coming for me. The last person I want to get on the bad side of is Martha Stewart. So everything in this story is alleged. Um, but in late 2001, on December 27th, 2001, Martha Stewart gets a call from her broker at Merrill Lynch. His name is Peter Bakanovic. And he calls her and basically gives her the lowdown about what happened at I'm Clone. And he said, hey, this is going to be released to the public tomorrow. And when it's released to the public, everyone is going to sell off their shares and the stock is going to tank because this is really bad news for the company. So before market closed that day on December 27th, Martha had sold off all 4,000 of her shares of I'm Clone. And it was actually a great investment because she had actually, uh, in return, got a $51,000 profit from the investment. So it was good that she sold when she did. And it was even better because, just as predicted, the next day when they released the information about Herbitox to the public, the stock absolutely tanked and it really, really took a nosedive. And it actually selling off the stock that the time that Martha did actually saved her from losing about $45,000. So it was a good move on paper. And I just want to say that just because you sell off a stock before it tanks doesn't mean that there's insider trading involved. Um, I've sold investments off, when I bought my condo, I sold off and liquidated a pretty good amount of investments. And about a week later, the stock took a really big dive. And that was honestly just pure luck. A lot of the market is luck. Um, it's really just being at the right place at the right time. Of course, there's educated guesses, but you never know what's going to happen. So just because you sell off and that's the stock tanks the next day, it doesn't mean you had some kind of insider information. Um, it can also work conversely. That has happened to me several times where I've sold the stock off and the stock skyrocketed two days later, but we won't talk about that, um, smiling through the tears. But it doesn't mean that there's insider trading involved. However, um, there was some really, really fishy things going on at I'm Clone in the weeks leading up to this announcement. Uh, the vice president of marketing uh, in, in mid-December had sold off $2.1 million worth of his shares. The inside counsel, he actually dumped $2.5 million worth of the company stock in early December. A lot of um, family of the CEO of I'm Clone and the CEO of I'm Clone was actually a good friend of Martha Stewart. His family was selling off over $4 million worth of their shares. So they were all kind of making really, really big sell-offs. And that raised several red flags to investigators. So that is why this was investigated. It wasn't just because Martha made a good move and sold off her stock before it tanked. Now, when they started investigating, they started finding a lot of fishy things. And Martha was named in the investigation. But Martha immediately denied that she had engaged in any improper trading. She actually said, hey, I was on a private plane to Mexico on December 27th with my friends, ready to go on a winter vacation. There was no way that I could have been involved in this, which, you know, girl is on her private plane. At least it was to Mexico and not for like a target run like Taylor Swift and Kylie Jenner do. So we'll give Martha a pass on this. But she said, I was on a private plane. 
um, there was I, I couldn't have been involved. And she actually said that she had issued a stop loss order on the stock that if it reached $60 a share, it would have automatically sold off. Um, if you don't know what a stop loss order is, it's a kind of a limit you can put on a stock that, you know, the, the average person can't watch the stock market all day. So and stocks can be very volatile. So sometimes you'll set stop loss orders that, hey, if um, it reaches a certain price, please sell off all of my shares because I want to make sure I make money on this investment. And it also can work inversely because if you want to buy a stock at a lower price, you can set a stop loss order and saying, hey, if this stock reaches $35 a share, make this investment for me so I can get in at a low price. So that's a stop loss order. And the thing is, there are records of every stop loss order you put on a stock. And this would have been an ironclad alibi for Martha to say, hey, this is why it sold off when the stock started tanking because I had already arranged for it to sell off if it had reached $60 a share. Except for the fact that there are records of every stop loss order and there was no record of her stop loss order on that stock. So that's when things started getting a lot more fishy and a lot more precarious for Martha. And as the investigation wore on, the FBI and investigators were really asking for any proof of this stop loss order. They were asking for phone records, email records, virtually any trace that could clear Martha because that stop loss order would have really cleared everything. However, the lid was kind of blown off that entire alibi when Peter Bakanovic's assistant, Douglas Fanuel, testified and said that he was actually asked by Peter to lie and cover for Martha and say that a stop loss order was present. But the guilt got to him and I think he realized he was in a really bad situation. So he told investigators, hey, I originally lied. I said there was a stop loss order when there really wasn't. So he actually didn't serve any jail time for tampering with the investigation and lying. But I think he really knew I, I need to clear this up because it's getting really, really bad. And the trial lasted, it lasted about six weeks. And during those six weeks, Martha behaved in a rather interesting way. She actually, during the entire trial, refused to ever go to court and testify on her behalf. She actually said that if she were served and summoned into the courtroom, she would just plead the fifth, which of course the Fifth Amendment is the right to remain silent and the right to not incriminate yourself. So she said, I'll, I'll plead the fifth. I'm not speaking under any terms. I'm not going into court and testifying, which was interesting because prosecutors tried to work with her attorneys for a plea deal. They really tried to negotiate a plea deal, but Martha was still maintaining her innocence. She refused to plead guilty and she refused to speak under oath, which is interesting. And that was met with a lot of mixed views from people and the general public, because a lot of people were thinking, well, if you're innocent, why wouldn't you go and testify and defend yourself? Why wouldn't you give your testimony and explain the situation and potentially clear your name? But I think we all kind of know that if Martha were to go into court and go under oath and say that she wasn't involved with this, she would she would be lying. So I think she kind of knew that I'm not going to go to court. I'm not going to lie under oath because that's just going to make this mess even bigger. So maybe it was best for Martha to stay out of the courtroom. I don't know. It's so hard to say. We just don't know what situations are going to be. I wish we had that kind of crystal ball that showed us what different roads would take us. But unfortunately, life doesn't work that way. So maybe it was good that Martha stayed out of it. I also think Martha... Uh, is a very prideful woman. And like we said, she is a maniacal perfectionist. And she just did not want to admit she was wrong. She did not want to say she was guilty. She did not want to say that she was involved in anything. And like I said, she just didn't want to admit she was wrong. Like we said, and we already established Martha is a Leo and I too am a Leo. So I get it. Sometimes I think I'd rather go to jail than admit I'm wrong. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I think it was a myriad of things and Martha just refused. So that really did not help her public persona in the sense that she didn't even go and defend herself. 
And one of the more damaging testimonies during the case was actually from Martha's good friend. Her name was Mariana Pasternak, and she actually testified against Martha during this entire trial. And she said that she remembers a conversation with Martha after Martha got off the phone with Peter Bakanovic after he had given her some kind of insider information. And Martha turned to her and said, isn't it great to have people who will just tell you these things? So <laughs> that is really bad and really incriminating. And that was kind of one of the final nails in the coffin of this case. And on July 16, 2004, Martha Stewart was found guilty of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and making false statements. Martha was sentenced to five months in federal prison, along with five months of home confinement, in addition to being fined $30,000 and given two years probation. It's interesting because you might be wondering what the sentence was that Peter Bakanovic got. And Peter Bakanovic actually got the same exact sentence as Martha, which I thought was interesting that he only got five months because I guess when you're comparing crimes, I feel like Peter Bakanovic had his hand in a lot more cookie jars than Martha did because he was the stockbroker to a lot of people at I'm Clone. He was sharing this information with a lot of big stockholders and kind of hoping to save a lot of his clients money by selling off the stock. And I just think he was in a worse situation. But in a lot of times when there's a public figure involved in a white collar crime, the public figure will get a larger sentence kind of to be made an example of. Look at Teresa Judice from The Real Housewives of New Jersey or Mike The Situation from The Jersey Shore. A lot of times they'll get a larger sentence because they don't want the public to think, oh, well, you got a lighter sentence because you're a celebrity. So that also kind of happens. And you have to remember, Martha did not have a plea deal. So if she did plead guilty, she probably could have gotten a lot less time on her sentence and perhaps could have avoided jail time altogether had she pled guilty. So it's interesting. It's hard to say what her sentence would have been if she did negotiate a plea deal, but we do know it would have been less. But I just thought it was an interesting anecdote that Peter Bakanovic got the same exact sentence as Martha. And it's interesting, too, because Martha, she didn't even want to wait for the appeal court and see what would happen. She said, I just want to get this behind me. I just want to serve my time and get on with my life, which actually worked out well because in the appeal courts, they still upheld the conviction. They still agreed that Martha was guilty. So it wouldn't have mattered regardless. And on October 8th, 2004, Martha Stewart reported to federal camp Alderson in Alderson, West Virginia. It's interesting when this first happened. I remember in the press, the press referred to Alderson as Camp Cupcake. And I really think that was a narrative that they were trying to spin to make it seem like Martha was going to a really minimum security prison. And it basically was just going to be an adult summer camp. She was going to do some crafts for a few months and then come back and really kind of diminish Martha's experience there and make it seem like it was very, very easy. And if you look up Alderson, Camp Alderson, there are some really serious accusations about what has gone on there and what inmates have had to endure at Camp Alderson at the hands of the people who have worked there. So it definitely was not Camp Cupcake for Martha. This was a federal penitentiary, and that experience is very, very difficult for everyone there. So it's really unfortunate that the press just tried to spin that narrative. And Martha was having a really difficult time in the press and from society when this conviction happened. When I was reading just some articles from back then, and I remember it from as a kid, there was a lot of, it reminded me just of the German term schadenfreude. And schadenfreude is basically basically means you don't necessarily wish badly for somebody, but you're happy when something bad does happen to them. And there was a lot of schadenfreude. I think because Martha was so rich and people were frustrated because when you see rich people involved in insider trading, yeah, it's very frustrating because you see, oh, well, the rich get richer and it's not fair. And I totally understand that. But the standard that Martha was held to is definitely not the standard that 
other rich, successful businessmen are held to. Uh, Martha, of course, had a different air about her. She had an air of perfectionism and, of course, kind of a military air about her. And I think a lot of people were turned off by that because, let's face it, people are threatened by very, very strong women. And Martha didn't fit the mold of usual, typical female on-air personality. She wasn't exceptionally smiley or bubbly or really personable. Martha was strict and she definitely portrayed perfectionism. And a lot of people said that she was just easy to hate and they were rooting for her to fail. And they were really happy to see that she was going to prison. And I remember I read one quote where they were excited for her to eat slop in prison. And it just people were happy about it. And it's interesting just when you view that because I think people, like I said, are just so threatened by a very strong female business person because you don't get that type of energy to mean businessmen. Look at Gordon Ramsay. I mean, that man has made a brand, has built a brand off of essentially verbally abusing people. And he's one of the top chefs in the in the world. Look at Simon Cowell. He was a phenomenon for American Idol. And he was just built an image of being extra mean to people. I don't know what society gets out of mean British men, but I, clearly they love them. Look at Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. That man ruined people's lives. And now he's on TikTok and he has a podcast and he has a YouTube channel and has kind of become a little bit of a cultural icon to a certain group of people. And I don't like to get political here on the Diving Board podcast, but there was a man who openly said, very, very mean, disparaging things about people and was very publicly nasty to people. And he was elected president of the United States, like the literal leader of the free world. So it's just such a double standard. And Martha was getting such a different response from the general public than a lot of these these men do. And like I said, I, I totally get it when it's frustrating when you see these rich people get breaks with insider trading. But you know, she wasn't getting the same energy as a man who wasted five and a half billion dollars taking himself to space. So <laughs> I can't, but I, I won't even go there. But Martha was definitely getting a much different public reception. And it just kind of shows the double standard and the misogyny in the world. So I will step off that soapbox. It's just a point I wanted to make. You're probably wondering how I fit so many soapboxes in such a small apartment, but I'm sure Martha could display them beautifully if she were here. But I just wanted to make that point that there, there certainly is a double standard. But Martha, I mean, she's a survivor. And the second she got to prison, she really was trying to make the most of her time. Martha's job in prison was on the cleaning crew, which we do know Martha is very good at that. So she probably excelled at that job. She also talked about doing crafts in prison. She was actually such a an always a mover and a shaker because you're only supposed to do one craft you were only allowed to do one craft in pottery class but martha decided that she wanted to make a nativity scene since she was going to be there over the holidays and she said well a nativity scene requires multiple pieces i mean you need the animals you need the wise men of course you need baby jesus so to to do a nativity scene you need a lot of parts so she said this should just count as one craft and they let her do it. And the nativity scene was beautiful. She's actually selling exact replicas on her website that she debuted last holiday season. And the nativity scene is very chic. The woman is just good at everything. And I think if, if I were to display a nativity scene this year, it would be that one. She also um, made crab apple jam from the crab apple trees at camp. And really, you know, when life gives you crab apples, you make crab apple jam. But I really don't understand how good crab apple jam would be. Have you ever had a crab apple? They're really sour. Like, they're so sour. I remember there used to be a crab apple tree on my block growing up and me and the neighborhood kids would pick them and, and eat them and only take a little bite because they were so sour. And then we would throw them at the cars that were passing by. <laughs> I 
sorry. I do not condone that behavior, okay, for the record. But it was the 90s. We didn't have iPads, okay, to occupy them. So we threw the crab apples at people. I'm sorry. I can I do not condone that, okay? When life gives you crab apples, you make the jam. You don't throw them at people. So <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a long time. But yeah, Martha was doing her thing. She really was thriving and, or, you know, I don't know if thriving is the right word, but she was surviving and she was making the best out of the situation. And Rosie O'Donnell actually told a really funny story on, I believe it was Watch What Happens Live recently. And she said that Martha had actually invited her to come visit her at Camp Alderson. And Rosie went down and saw her and she said, okay, I don't want to show up looking really nice. I don't want to show up Martha in any way. So uh, Rosie said she didn't shower that morning and she kind of just casual. And when she walked in, Martha came out looking just as perfect as she usually did on television. You know, Martha was not letting this very big setback set her back. Honestly, she's a survivor and she was doing her thing. And Martha, she actually... Uh, left a message to the public during the holiday season. And I really appreciate this message that she gave because I wish she would honestly still talk more about it. But she did give a message about prison reform and the women that she was meeting in this prison. And I think it really did give Martha a different perspective because she did live a charmed life. You know, it, for for many 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 years, she was she was one of the richest women in the country, one of the richest women in the world. So I think meeting these women from a very different walk of life than the the walk that Martha had experienced was a very very big eye opener for her, and quite frankly, I think a very much needed eye opener for her. So I do appreciate that she sent this message out and I do wish she would continue to do so because it's still a very big issue. And her message was a holiday message that she had put out via her website. And she said, I beseech you all to think about these women, to encourage the American people to ask for reforms, both in sentencing guidelines, in length of incarceration for nonviolent first time offenders, and for those involved in drug taking. They would much better be served in a true rehabilitation center than in prison where there is no real help, no real programs to rehabilitate, no programs to educate, no way to be prepared for life out there where each person will ultimately find herself, many with no skills and no preparation for living which I think is a really powerful message. I think it was a powerful message to release in 2004. And I think it's still a very powerful message now because it's still a massive issue in this country. And I think we should continue to revisit it until there is some type of change. Um, A celebrity who does do a great job is actually Countess Luanne de Lesseps from The Real Housewives of New York City. She had a run-in with the law a few years ago, and she really brings a lot of awareness to prison reform and people who are serving astronomical sentences for nonviolent drug crimes. And I really do give her a lot of credit. And I really wish Martha would still talk about this. But I did appreciate that she had released that statement at the time. And on March 4th, 2005, Martha had completed her five-month sentence and was released from Camp Alderson. And upon her release, Martha wasted no time making a splash yet again, because on the night of her release, as she was getting off the plane in the middle of the night and all those photographers were there, she made a huge splash, of course, by wearing that iconic crocheted poncho. Anyone who had any access to a news outlet in 2005 knows that poncho. That took the world by storm. Everyone wanted to know where to get that crocheted poncho that Martha was wearing, but it was made by a fellow inmate. It was handmade by one of Martha's inmate friends that she had met at camp. And uh, if you were interested and you were good at crocheting, that pattern is still red 
readily available online because the poncho is iconic. It is just an amazing piece of pop culture of the 2000s. And Martha has actually said she still has the poncho. That is a special memento for her uh, from that time. So the poncho is still in the possession of Martha Stewart. And we love to hear it because that is just a national artifact and we live for it. My sister's actually good at crocheting. Maybe I can send it to her and, and ask her to create us one. Anyway, Martha wasted no time getting back on her feet. She actually was um, propositioned by Donald Trump to do the apprentice Martha Stewart. And The Apprentice Martha Stewart was really Martha's comeback, but it didn't have that great of ratings. And that actually sparked the feud between Donald and Martha because Donald was like always very public about his comments and his negative comments about Martha Stewart. So they don't really care for each other anymore. And that relationship has been fractured. So I don't think Martha is going to get an invite to Mar-a-Lago anytime soon. But I think that's okay, because I'm sure Donald has his hands full tending to his guests from the FBI. Um, but uh, also about The Apprentice Martha Stewart, that is the first time we see Bethany Frankel, our skinny girl mogul. And it's funny because Bethany Frankel is the reason I pursued a career in business because I was in high school when The Real uh, Housewives of New York City first came out. And you just saw Bethany peddling her brand and trying to grow her business. And I just admired her so much. And she really inspired me to take that route in life as well. And I'm very happy that I did. And I just admire her so much. So I owe Martha Stewart that because my ultimate businesswoman icon is Bethany Frankel. And that is uh, thanks to Martha Stewart. So shout out to Martha on that. And though Martha Stewart Apprentice was met with very lackluster viewership, Martha still continued to crank out tons of projects within her empire. She was still publishing her magazine. She was back on television. She was publishing books. And she had actually expanded her Kmart line and also expanded into Sears by selling Martha Stewart paint colors. So she was still an incredible mogul and was still doing her thing. But that wasn't met with a lot of financial hardship because in part of the insider trading scandal. When she first was convicted, the stock of Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia actually fell 70%. And because of that fierce fall, Martha had actually lost about a quarter of her net worth. And when you're worth as much as Martha, that is a lot of money to lose. And the stock eventually did rebound, but that was after a little while, and stockholders actually sued and won in a class action lawsuit against Martha Stewart because they said, hey, we had invested so much in your company and the stock fell so fast because of your conviction, and we lost a lot of money from investing in that stock. So they actually did win that settlement, and like I said, it cost Martha $30 million. And Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, it was an amazing company, but it didn't ever reach back to that heyday in the late 90s, early 2000s, when it was worth almost $2 billion. And that's in part, of course, of the public image from the insider trading scandal. However, that didn't play a massive part in it. Times were just changing. Uh, a lot of the big money maker was the magazine. And like we said before, the golden age of magazines is unfortunately over and people started reading more online and the magazine was just kind of forced to close because the readership just went down because times were changing. And also just it was the rise of the blogger, the rise of the influencer. It was a much different climate than the late 90s, early 2000s. And Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia just didn't keep up with that specific technology. So the worth of the company kept dipping, dipping, dipping until it was acquired in 2015 by Sequential Brands for $353 million. And of course, for a company that was worth almost $2 billion, $350 million is a far cry from the heyday of Martha Stewart living. But like I said, it was a much different time. And essentially, Martha just merged with sequential brands. And 
it actually was a really great move for Martha because it was still gave her the opportunity to continue to produce products and continue to do all the projects that she loved and still do her television shows and her radio show now. So it was a really good move for her in the end because she's continuing to make a lot of money. So it's it's not a sob story by, by any means. And Martha, she, to this day, is just still grinding. And it's incredible. She's really kind of rebranded herself and rebranded herself with her friendship with Snoop Dogg. Uh, in 2016, her and Snoop Dogg launched Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner Party show. And it really has just been an incredible friendship for the both of them. They both have amazing things to say about each other. And it's a very unlikely duo, but I think it's been a really, really great rebrand for Martha because through Snoop Dogg, it's kind of given Martha a more hipper image and a less kind of draconian image than the days of yore. It's kind of made her a more relatable person, a more fun person. And I think that is something that consumers are resonating with. We're kind of resonate, resonating with the anti-influencer and someone we can relate to a little bit more. So I think that was a really good move for Martha. And they seem to just have an awesome friendship. Martha has also launched a new meal delivery service called Marley Spoon, which I haven't tried yet, but I definitely want to. And she's also been doing more television spots. She's also, I saw on the Roku channel in November, she's going to be doing Martha Stewart Holiday, her show on there. So she is just grinding. I saw in the grocery store the other day, she has a Chardonnay with 19 crimes, which is kind of a cheeky nod to her run in with the law uh, a decade and a half ago. And Martha really has rebounded in an incredible way. And she's still extremely relevant to this day. And and has opened herself to new generations. And I think that's amazing. She is in her 80s now and just shows no signs of slowing down. I think Martha is a person who is just happy when she's busy and I can definitely relate. So I really, really admire Martha and I think she is still an incredible businesswoman and just very, very admirable. Of course, she's had her faults, but she's paid her debt to society and has really come out on top and she really is a legend an icon and she is the moment so shout out to Martha Stewart keep doing your thing and I am excited to just see what happens and see what she produces in the future and on that note, that is the story of Martha Stewart. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot. I know there were some times where I got a little serious and went on a few tangents. So thank you so much for indulging me. But I just think it was important to talk about those specific topics in this story. And I would be remiss if I didn't speak about them because I think it would have been just a wasted opportunity. And it was important to kind of touch on those things. So thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this story. And if you liked this episode, I would so appreciate if you could rate me five stars on Spotify and Apple Music. And also, if you are inclined to write me a review on Apple Music, that just motivates more people to listen to the podcast. Uh, thank you again so much for listening and bearing with me during this summer when I was so busy. I'm so excited to be back. This was so fun. And I am so excited for Diving Board October. I have so much content planned. This is one of my favorite times of the year. And when I launched Diving Board, I was already looking ahead to this time. I'm going to be talking about some really interesting unsolved mysteries in Hollywood and some spooky stories in Hollywood. So there is some really, really interesting content coming this October. I cannot wait. So stay tuned for that. And just thank you all so much again. Please, if you want to follow along with the podcast, hit follow wherever you're listening to the podcast and join our family at Diving Board Pod on Instagram. And of course, that is B-O-R-E-D. 
And if you, of course, have any requests for episodes, please feel free to slide into my DMs on the Diving Board Pod Instagram. I love when you do that. Thank you all so much for the people who have submitted ideas. I really appreciate it. And before I sign off, I want to leave you all with a quote from Miss Martha Stewart, and that is, the ultimate goal is to be an interesting, useful, wholesome person. If you're successful on top of that, then you're way ahead of everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Diving Board Podcast, and I'll talk to you all very soon. Take care, everyone.